This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, today we're talking about the conflict in Ukraine. Um, my guest is Tom Philpot, uh, who is a frequent guest on this show. If you're not familiar with him, he's the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine. And his book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It, is now available in paperback. Congratulations on that, Tom. That's always nice to get another little lease on life of a book, right? It'll be available very soon on um, on May 3rd. So Excellent. coming up here in just a few weeks. Cool. So pre-order. Thank you so much. <laughs> Are you kidding? I'm always going to plug my friends. <laughs> awesome. Plus, it was a great book, man. I mean, come on. Um, so anyway, let's jump right into it, Tom. So you wrote a piece in Mother Jones on April 6th. Uh, and I might say that you scooped the New York Times, which had a similar very long piece for a newspaper uh, about how uh, the conflict in the Ukraine will uh, affect uh, global hunger and food reserves. Um, so what your article does is deconstruct how the war in Ukraine is going to affect hunger globally. And I want you to explain why this particular war, as opposed to, say, all the other bloody conflicts uh, that are ongoing, Syria, uh, Sudan, you know, uh, Somalia, you, know, you name it, where is it not warfare uh, around the globe right now? But why is this one uh, having such a particularly uh, strong impact on food production? That's a great question. Um, I mean, if you were going to choose a place in the world to have a war to do maximum disruption of a global food system, this might be it. Um, oh, and Jesus. the reason is, is that, the, uh, so, you know, first of all, Ukraine has got this incredibly rich topsoil. It's got this, this, you know, piece of land in the middle of the country that they call the Black Earth region because it's got uh, a store of topsoil that has few rivals in the world, like the U.S. Corn Belt, um, right. Argentine Pampas. Um, and, and so, you know, it's an incredibly important wheat-growing region. Um, just east of there is the Russian wheatlands, uh, which uh, Vladimir Putin has really built up over the past 20 years, invested a lot of money in, um, and has made Russia the biggest wheat exporter in the world. And a lot of that wheat leaves the country and enters the world market through the Black Sea, that is to say, through Ukraine. So it's this right. incredibly important trade route. And it has been for centuries and centuries. Uh, it's been the way that wheat in that region gets out into the Mediterranean and into the rest of Europe, Northern Africa. Um, so what you're doing here when you, when you have a war in Ukraine is you're um, both destroying the current crop, or you know, you're, you're making it impossible to plant the current crop. Right. Um, you're making it impossible to export the reserves that are that are still there. Um, and then there's another thing to, that that adds to the difficulty, and that is that Russia is a you know dominant global producer of natural gas and also a dominant global producer of nitrogen fertilizer. And as you know, Katie, um, making <laughs> nitrogen fertilizer requires natural gas. So when right. the war started 
and everyone started boycotting uh, Russian gas or as much as they could. Um, Germany still isn't doing that, but you know, lots and lots of countries are refusing fossil fuels from Russia. Right. That caused a, a spike in natural gas prices, um, which in turn caused a spike in fertilizer prices, but then also taking away the trade route, the Black Sea trade route for fertilizer, bottled up Russian fertilizer in Russia, uh, and that puts further upper pressure on nitrogen fertilizer prices. And so what this means is that not only are we seeing a big drop in wheat flows from the Black Sea, not mm -hmm. only are we seeing, you know, the essential evisceration of the Ukrainian wheat crop for, you know, the coming season, um, but we're, we're also seeing a huge spike in fertilizer prices. Um, and so what that means is that farmers right now who are saying, you know, let me take advantage of this um, spike in wheat prices to plant more wheat are now having to think really hard about that because their input prices are, are so high. And so, you know, this is creating this sort of spiraling situation of higher food prices. Unbelievable. I mean, it really is. Well, we'll talk about it in a minute, but it really is extraordinary how uh, dependent we are on these uh, far-flung nations for specific products that we are either cannot or no longer produce for ourselves, not just the United States, but really every nation. Because the Middle East is profoundly impacted by the loss of the wheat crop uh, in Ukraine, because that's a major, they're a major supplier for them, um, as are uh, many other countries around the world. But this, I mean, I see this as sort of equivalent to when they had the bread riots in Egypt and the so-called Arab Spring. I mean, that was the catalyst for the you know, it was swiftly squashed, essentially, but but that was the cause of tremendous unrest in the Middle East back in what, what was that, 2012, 2013, something like that? 2011, 2012, yeah. Yeah, incredible. So the food prices, which were already uh, kick spiking because of the pandemic, now we have the problem of not getting the natural gas, and then that has a knock-on effect with fertilizer, um, but let's go back and talk for a second about the role that Ukraine plays in providing the world supply of wheat, as well as sunflower seed oil, which is a major food processing ingredient. I mean, everybody knows the Ukrainian national symbol is the sunflower, right? Well, that's why. Um, and there's, and I think they also produce a lot of corn there, don't they? They do. They they produce a large and growing amount of corn. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so our first shortage is wheat. Let's talk uh, let's talk about the boon to the gluten-free industry, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, if you've if you haven't invested in gluten-free products, now would be the time, right? Um but talk about you mentioned something in the article which by the way was published on April 6th if anybody wants to go back and look it up and read it for themselves. Um it's Mother Jones April 6th. Um there you you mentioned something called the stocks to use ratio. Um, and what that means in practical terms. What, what, what is that all about? Yeah, so that's just a measure of how much food we have in store for a rainy day. Um, and so what you do, you know, you can do it for every crop. And I think the, um, the FAO does it for every crop. And the United States does it internally through the USDA. So what you do is you look at how much of, you know, crop X is held, you know, how much you have at the end of the season. Right. Um, and that's your stock. And then your use is how much disappeared, how much you sold off into the marketplace. Um, and if you have a, a high stock to use ratio, 
that means that you um, you're, you're sort of buffered for the any kind of rainy day ahead. Um, prices probably aren't going to rise that much because if there's a shortfall in production somewhere, there's plenty of storage to make up for it. Um, and when you have a low stock to use ratio, that means that there is a high chance of uh, real volatility going forward. So your um, you know your your pantry is bare. Um, and when the pantry is bare and there's a production shortfall, then the price of that commodity is going to spike. And so what I was um, showing in the article is that heading into 2022, um, we had very low global um, stock to use ratio happening. Um, so the, the sort of global wheat pantry was depleted heading into that crisis. And that's one of the reasons why prices have responded so rapidly. They've gone up so quickly and so steeply since the invasion uh, is because we didn't have much on hand. And the reason why we didn't have much on hand is not particularly comforting. And, and that is that in you know, many of the big producing countries, including the United States and Canada, uh, which are both big producers of wheat and big exporters of wheat, we we had droughts, um, climate related droughts Whoa. in wheat production areas, and you know wheat is something that um, global demand for wheat rises. You know it's a staple crop; it's not used in livestock feed in any kind of big way, right? Um, and so it basically rises with global population. Um, you know, especially in the wheat eating countries, which are like you know. Northern Africa, the Middle East, um, Europe, United States, um, we're not seeing huge increases in, in wheat demand. It's sort of predictable, slow increases in wheat demand, but supply shocks like droughts in big areas will deplete stocks. If, uh, if crops come under expectations, um, you know, the industry starts burning through um, stocks. You know, and something else I should say here is that there's a decades-long trend in carrying lower stocks. It used to be uh, for much of the 20th century, the idea was that countries should run grain reserves. Right. Uh, precisely for the kind of rainy day that we're having now. Right. And um, this went out of fashion um, in the 70s and 80s. Uh -huh. uh, the U.S. decided basically that um, having large reserves was too expensive, and we started uh, advising other countries through the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank that this is an expensive luxury to keep grain reserves. What you should do is rely on the global grain market. Um, there'll be plenty uh, to go around. Um, you know, if you have a shortfall, just tap the international market. Everything will be fine. And so we've seen over the past decades this selling off of grain reserves. Um, and, you know, now the, the ones, you know, such grain reserves that we, that we do have are sort of held by the market. They're like sort of farmers produce too much. And so they're storing their wheat. Um, they're not any kind of organized um, government coordinated effort. And, you know, someone like me thinks that as we head into climate change, you know, as it continues, volatility continues. And, you know, clearly geopolitical volatility is not a thing of the past, um, even in the West. Um, I think we, you know, we should be thinking about a return to keeping grain reserves. 
I feel like you discussed this in your book, Barrel is Bounty, didn't you? I think I did a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I, I do remember being struck by that. Um, so there you go, people, another reason to go out and buy this book. Um, we're going to take a really quick break, kind of early in the show, but um, because I have so many other questions that relate to each other. So we'll be right back after the sponsor drop. Please stay tuned uh, for more with Tom Philpott. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Okay, so one of the other things I read when I was preparing for this program, Tom, was um, Northern Ag Network, yet another trade thing that I subscribe to, um, reports that the war will affect grain markets, specifically corn and wheat, for several years. Um, uh, Let me ask you first, why uh, couldn't other countries like the United States or Canada uh, or Brazil, say, um, ramp up their production of wheat to um, more or less uh, uh, manage the shortfall that is coming from uh, the conflict in Ukraine? Or is that just not a viable option? Well, or would it yeah. take too long? Would it take too I long? I mean, I think that's you know basically it. I mean, agriculture you know works um, very slowly. I decide I'm going to put. I, I can only decide I'm going to put wheat in at certain times of the year, and it takes a certain uh, amount of time for it to, um, to to mature and be harvested. So there is that time lag. Um, but you know, and the the other thing is that yes, um, these these air these regions these countries will respond by planting more wheat. Um, I was just reading about how Argentina and Brazil are planning to do that. Um, you know, U.S. farmers are are certainly seeing you know watching this pr- incredible price increase. Uh, but there's a couple of things that besides the time lag that are a little bit different this time. One of them is the spike in fertilizer costs. Ah, um, right. And this is something else I discussed in Perilous Bounty. When prices for commodities spike, it doesn't necessarily translate to a, a boom for farmers, um, at least not for very long, because input prices, the prices of seeds and chemicals and, and fertilizers, these things tend to drift up when prices drift up and tighten up that margin. And so... You might think that, you know, when corn is $2, it would be so great if it was $6 a bushel. Uh, When that happens, your input prices will ultimately rise to about $5.90 a bushel. And so you'll you'll be back, you know, making very, very little money. And that process usually takes a little time. But this independent spike in fertilizer prices and the fact that a lot of other stuff was already, you know, stuff like Roundup herbicide was already rising in price before this war, mainly for supply chain issues. Um, that has already happened. We're already seeing this big jump in, uh, in input costs. Absolutely. And that's going to buffer. That, that will buffer some of that effect. And right. then the other thing is that, you know, especially in a place like the United States, um, when you react to the market and plant more wheat, 
you're not planting something else, um, maybe it's corn and soybeans or oats or whatever else it is. And so shortfalls translate into those crops and those prices rise up. And that's what happened when the uh, U.S. ramped up ethanol in the 2000s. Um, you know, what happened was not only did corn prices spike, but soybean prices spiked and wheat spiked because people moved out of those crops into corn, leaving a shortfall. And so, you know, it's almost a Rob Paul to pay Peter. You put a bunch of land into wheat to take advantage of that. And now corn prices are spiking. And, you know, people don't think of corn as a staple crop because it's a feed crop in the United States. Right. But it's a staple in much of sub-Saharan Africa. Sure. Um, it's a staple, obviously, in Mexico. Yeah, all throughout, um, and the, so all throughout you get a, the Central Americas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you, you get a, you know, you get a similar thing where, um, you know, our food system is a little bit different. The price of corn doubles, and that might add a few cents of uh, extra costs to your box of cornflakes. Right. But the price of corn doubles in Mexico, and if there's not a government response, it, you know, it translates to hunger and unrest um, right. almost immediately. Um, and so, you know, that's true what you said that, you know, you know these, these big producing countries will shift more into wheat, but it, it's not going to solve the problem anytime soon, and it could cause knock-on problems. Absolutely. And, I mean, coupled with that, we saw the enormous increase in fuel costs, which is having a tremendous impact yeah. on farmers. I mean, never mind all of the other issues that they're facing, um, just the shortfall in gasoline. Uh, and the cost of gasoline right now, especially as they move into planting and having to use their tractors and all of that stuff. I mean, I don't see that getting any better anytime soon. From this. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's another example of input prices, you know, rising to sort of buffer this, uh, this rush right. into planting more. And then, you know, Katie, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, for consumers, if you're a consumer, you know, let's say in one of the really vulnerable countries like in North Africa or the Middle East, mm -hmm. you're already paying a lot more for energy, for gasoline, and this, these food price spikes are coming on top of that. Right. But it's also hitting consumers in the U.S. Um, Low-income consumers, you know, let's say you're a low-income person who has to get, you know, you, you have to drive a car to get to work. Right. Um, maybe it's not a particularly late model. It's probably not a hybrid. So maybe it doesn't get great gas mileage. Right. You've been hit with this giant increase in gasoline prices. And now the price of something else that you need to buy and can opt out of food is going up too. And so it's, it's definitely squeezing low income and moderate income populations in the United States and Europe. Uh, as well. Um, and, you know, where that goes, you know, who knows at this point? It goes to the right wing. I mean, that, you know, that's where that's going. We're already trending in that direction. And I think this is going to be really the kiss of death between those food prices and the gasoline prices. I mean, say goodbye to those midterms for if you're a Democrat. And the Republican <laughs> Party is literally doing voter registration drives at gas stations to take advantage of right. the situation. Right, right. Um, another thing, I, 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 I pulled out a, a paragraph from that Northern Ag Network uh, report or you know article that I read, and I'm going to read the quote now because I, I thought it said something so um, 
you know, so disturbing, really, uh, about uh, these kinds of situations uh, in terms of exploiting uh, these rises, these, you know, big spikes in, in costs. Um, and, and, the, and the quote is as follows, as grain prices rise, U.S. elevators, that's grain elevators, that's the guys who kind of like process and trade grain, right, um, have opportunities to book profits on owned grain inventories purchased at lower cost basis. However, you know, higher capital will be required for a future grain purchase, blah, blah, blah. But my point in flagging that was that, you know, this is a situation where if you're trading on the futures market or you're invested in, you know, a grain company or something like that, your shareholders are going to see a really nice big chunk of change coming their way, right? And that oh, yeah. while the rest of us are struggling to put food on the table, and I, you know, that to me, the immorality of that sort of stated so blandly and so expansively in this in this little kind of throwaway article, I was just like rocked by that. I mean, I feel like there should be some mechanism whereby there's got to be a cap or, you know, there, I mean, I don't think it's right for companies. I mean, you can call me a commie if you want. I kind of am. But, you know, I don't think it's right for these companies to capitalize on global misery, Um you know, at the expense of their fellow citizens. I mean, I, I, I'm naive, I know, but yeah. still. <laughs> I mean, sure. I mean, if, if they bought the grain last year um, at pre-crisis levels and they're holding it to sell this year, then they're going to see a windfall. And, oh, you know, yeah. I mean, I think that is one of the reasons why government grain reserves are so great because they really right. take a lot of speculation out of the market. Right. Like, you know, if we had a big... You know, if you have a big reserve of grain and you get some external shock like this, then, you know, your futures traders and commodity traders are piling into that commodity because they know that it's, it's going to be scarce and they can make a lot of money off that trade uh, without right. ever touching or seeing or, you know, necessarily even owning any grain. Um, right. But in the same situation, if there's a big, if there's a big grain store then what, what, what would happen would, would be the government would release some grain into the market that would pull prices down um, because it's available. It would also pull hunger down because right. it's available. Um, and, um, and those speculators would sort of get washed out of the market. Um, right. I mean, th this is why Biden has just released a huge amount of uh, gas from the federal energy reserves or whatever you call those, the gasoline petrochemical reserves, right? To, exactly. To kind of combat the excessive profit making of these uh, energy companies. And so this is this would provide a very similar opportunity had we not abandoned the policy of maintaining uh, basic uh, grain reserves in our own country. That's lesson, right. lesson learned there, my friend, don't you think? Yeah, I should do a piece about how we should bring back the grain reserves. I think you should, Tom, where we need you. <laughs> but I mean, as we were saying, like these shortages are not just limited to poorer countries. And boy, I think we're going to be seeing the tanks roll into suppress, you know, uh, civilian protests and, and all over the world from if this continues to, you know, escalate as I suspect it will. Um, but uh, what, you know, let's let's talk for a minute about not only the impact on the United States, but but how the globalization of food production, i.e., 
putting specific uh, commodities or, or products are grown only in one or two or three places, uh, therefore uh, subject to either climate shocks or you know global unrest, stuff like that. You know how we have made that globalization of food production really uh, a globalization of food insecurity. I want to kind of dissect that a little bit. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. And you know, I think that um, that global trade can actually be a way to buffer shocks. If you know, I mean, it could be you know, in general, it's a great thing. Um, yeah, absolutely. If, if we have a crop failure in the United States, you know, it's great that we have these global trade networks in place to, you know, get food to us and vice versa. Right. But I think I think that what happened, you know, in development theory, you know, starting probably in the middle of the 20th century and, you know, moving through the great Clinton 90s, the idea was that we could create um, this really efficient global system where every country focused on their sort of comparative advantage, right, and um, and produce whatever crops could get the you know the most bang for the buck, and imported everything else, and you know, including um, staple crops. And so, right. what you get is you get a world where you know the IMF and the World Bank are telling these low-income countries, right. you, know, you know, you guys, you're. you're your diet is based on rice. Well, don't worry about producing rice. The United States, you know, is this giant producer of rice. What you should produce is mangoes. And, and I guess what I'm talking about here is Haiti, which is the most extreme case of this. Um, but it's also sort of the story of the second half of the 20th century into the 21st century of how development theory played out. Right. Um, don't worry about rice. Let the U.S. produce rice for you. Um, devote that land to things like mangoes and papayas to sell to the U.S. market. You can get a nice price for them. Um, devote your best farmland to doing that. Uh, and then so suddenly, all of a sudden, you're completely dependent on U.S. rice. And if there is some price spike, like there have been, um, you know, for the same reasons we've talked about here, um, rice prices spiked during the, you know, 2010 11, 12 period, mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden that translates to um, a food crisis in Haiti who, you know, ha you know, has incredible land for producing rice, has a tradition of uh, producing rice, uh, and suddenly has, you know, no access to rice except for very expensive rice. So, I mean, <laughs> I think what we can do is, you know, not rail against trade itself, but um, encourage countries um, give countries resources through the IMF and the World Bank and whatever institutions to reinvest in agriculture that, um, that provides a measure of food security where you know, sort of national food security is the main goal. And if you can make some money selling mangoes to Europeans or Americans um, on the side, that's great. But food security being the main goal and that way, when we have one of these uh, catastrophes happen, we have you know something unimaginable like a war in the middle of Europe, um, you know, at the Black Sea, which you know mm -hmm. is something that we you know couldn't conceive of really before mm -hmm. um, the, the last several years when when Russia took um, Crimea. It was just sort of out of the realm of possibility. Uh, right. and we now know that all, you know all those ideas are off the table. Um, 
then we have a lot more food security. And, you know, something like this would cause a crisis, but it wouldn't have to tip into, you know, starvation or hunger on a grand scale. Um, and, and I think that's what we need to do is we need to rethink trade and, um, you know, maybe make it a little bit less efficient and a little bit more robust um, is, is what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. I mean, having, uh, you know, grain storage, um, having countries, because you're reminding me that, for example, what I uh, interviewed Anirata Mittal the other day from Oakland Institute, she was talking about agricultural companies that go into, say, sub-Saharan countries and say, uh, stop planting millet and rice and wheat and, you know, what you need to eat and start planting, you know, palm trees for palm oil. It's exactly, exactly. the same thing. And, yes. you know, and and... And, you know, it, these crops that don't necessarily belong there, but, you know, which they are managed to, you know, drum up enough groundwater or whatever, you know, are also having a huge impact on the population at large in terms of displacement, in terms of polluting their water supplies. I mean, you know, really, I, the whole thing is has got to stop. <laughs> It's got to stop, yeah. Tom. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, I agree. And I feel like this this crisis really exposes it. And it's this moment. I mean, I think the, the COVID crisis started to, to sort of pull back the yes. veil. And I think this crisis really should be a moment to expose that and to, you know, think of how we can move the world in different directions. And, you know, I, I interviewed this um, this incredible writer recently who wrote a book called Oceans of Grain, um, have you heard of this new? It's a new book. I think I may have seen that. I'm trying to. It, no, I'm thinking about a water book that I was also quite interested in. Who wrote it? He's a professor at the University of Georgia, and his name is um, Scott Reynolds. Scott uh -huh. uh, Scott Reynolds Nelson. Okay, uh, it's an incredible book, and I interviewed him on Mother Jones uh, just a little while back. Cool. Um, and, you know, he, he has this, he had this great quote because, you know, the, the book is, is focused on the development of the global retrade, focusing on Russia and Ukraine. Um, really? Oh, my God. Yeah. He's going to be he's going to be selling a lot of copies of that book now. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> it, and it came out like in early 2022. Um, but he gave me Russian. a great quote that when you see tanks in Ukraine, you're going to see tanks in a lot of other places too. And the uh, and it's not because of wars of conquest. It's governments turning tanks on their own people. Yes. You're going to see unrest in other parts of the world. And, um, you know, that's why, I, you know, I also feel like we're at this juncture in history that is so unpredictable. Like who could have predicted the Arab Spring and the the coming of the Syrian civil war and all that that implied. Right. Um, and we currently, you know, seeing generals from that who um, intervened on, the, on, on Russia's behalf in that war now at work in Ukraine, doing the same thing to civilian populations. Yes. Um, and, you know, who knows what, you know, rough beasts this, um, this current crisis is going to draw in. It's going to, I think it's going to reshuffle the 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 deck um, in global politics, but it now so you know, we're in a time of great unpredictability. But now is also the time to figure out how to make the more world more resilient and robust to these kinds of shocks because we're going to see them anyway from climate change. Yes, we are.
That's right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, this is, it's just that this has become such a nucleus, such an explosive nucleus of disasters uh, wrapped around each other. It's, it's kind of breathtaking. Um, I, I certainly never expected to see this in my lifetime. I have to say, I really did not. Yeah. Um, you know, so, okay. So to fix our food system, here's our lesson. One, we have to have national reserves. Okay. That's number one. Number two, we have to stop exporting this development idea that other countries should grow specific crops that are not necessarily going to sustain their own populations uh, in favor of the ones that will. So that's lesson number two. But where do you see the political will uh, for that kind of massive reorganization of how trade policy and development policy are implemented across the globe? And, and here in the United States, as well as everywhere else, I mean... Well, I mean, I think the United States is very influential in the way that these, um, you know, these institutions like the IMF and the World Bank operate. Um, so a lot of that has to come from the U.S. and also from Europe. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's unclear to me with, um, you know, the French election going on as we, we talk mm. right now and mm -hmm. um, the right-wing candidate getting um, kind of an eye-popping amount of support. Yep. And, you know, the U.S. midterms looming. Um, and we're seeing eye-popping support for a right-wing agenda, really an authoritarian agenda here in this country. And, in fact, we are um, seeing that exactly. So, you know, I, I just don't know. I mean, I think it's the same question. Really, it's not a different question from where does the political will come um, come from for a smart, uh, concerted response to climate change, um, a global yeah. problem that needs a, a global uh, response. And um, and that is looking really shaky right now. And I think the the, the food question that, that it's at its very core is, is no different. Right, right. Bill McKibben had a great piece, I think it was in The Guardian today, um, talking about uh, sort of these right-wing dictators, or really that 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 energy, that oil production, essentially, um, is like where we have the most amount of oil production seems to be where we have the most amount of authoritarian uh, government. Um, like it just gives people too much power to be able to access. Uh, a commodity that is essential for uh, life as we know it around the world. And I, I thought that was just such an interesting perspective on, um, you know, the very, the, the imperative that we must get away from fossil fuel use uh, yeah. around the world because it that really is a smart does. observation. Right? Because it allows these, whoever controls those oil reserves, controls their population and can put the pressure you know, that whatever kind of pressure they want to exert on other countries um, because they have control over those oil reserves. And, yeah. you know, it doesn't seem to help the United States that we are now a net producer and exporter of oil because, you know, these guys are kind of Exxon, Mobil, all of these companies are, are operating somehow outside of the sphere of uh, government influence. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, one thing that I want to say about about that analogy to oil is um, is that, you know, when this invasion happened and oil prices um, surged and gasoline prices surged, 
the industry immediately stepped in to say, you know, we you have to take all regulations off of us. We have to do the Keystone <laughs> pipeline. We have right, to right. <laughs> we, you have to give us all of the concessions in you know offshore drilling and public lands drilling. We have to drill the Alaska National Wildlife Reserve and all this stuff. And um, and so th- this is sort of cl- a classic shock doctrine response. This idea right. that there's this shock. Um, and so, you know, give us our way now. There's this chaos right. and we're going to use that to see. And, um, you know, so far it really hasn't worked, um, you know, completely well. Like, you know, Biden hasn't done much of that, which is great. Um, but that is the sort of rhetoric that we're, get, that we're hearing. And if the Republicans win in 2020, you know, in this year's midterms and also in 2024, yeah. um, that's the way we're, go- we're going. And that's, you know, this war is going to be an excuse for that. And yes. I think that there's an analogous thing with food. There's a shortage of wheat. There's a shortage of fertilizer. What we need to do is ramp up, you know, industrialized wheat production in the U.S., in right. um, Argentina and Brazil. We need to ramp up natural gas production. We need to ramp up fertilizer production and just intensify, 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 produce more crops. And that's the way to solve this. And I think that's exactly the wrong answer. The right, right answer is to shift to biodiversity, to crop rotations, to working in legumes into rotations that fix nitrogen, right. to lower your need for fertilizer. Um, everything we just discussed about investing in, in agriculture in sort of, you know, staple agriculture in the global South, um, you know, big investments in that. Um, these are the way that ways that we really um, and the crisis, not by just, you know, doing more of the same at an intensified pace. Yes. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. That's exactly right. Uh, it's, you know, it's like looking, stepping back from these really uh, now disproven theories around architecture, uh, agriculture and energy use uh, and and look for look to something that is going to be more holistic. I mean, I, you know, I hate to engage in all the buzzwords and everything. I'm not a farmer. I don't really know this stuff. I mean, I read whatever I read. But but, you know, the reality is, is that you can't not you can't ignore the impact, for example, of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus on uh, just the United States waterways, right? Oh my like, God, yeah. We're running out of drinking water here, people. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like you're out in the farm belt. People are drinking bottled water. They have to pay for it because their towns cannot pay for a water treatment system that will remove those nutrients from the drinking water. I mean, this is real. This is on the ground in the United States right now. It's not just the crummy infrastructure in Flint, Michigan. It's the farm belt. It's like what's pouring into the Raccoon River in uh, in Iowa. You know, I mean, the fights that are going on in Iowa over industrialized agriculture are heartbreaking. The, I or mean, the people, Central Valley of California. It's not just sure. the drought and water scarcity. It's the, the it's groundwater water that people drink is completely fouled. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like we – this is really – we have to take a really major step back and, you know, re-examine, you know, what we think the future is going to be because when the water wars start, I mean, I don't want to be around for that, but they're going to happen, right? That's not very fun. No. I mean, and it's reality because couple that with climate change, we're, you know, groundwater reserves are at an all-time low. Uh, the, we've all seen the pictures of Lake Powell and Lake Mead all-time lows. They barely turn a turbine. I mean, you know, come on. 
uh, we got to wake up and smell the coffee about the water problems that we're going to have in the next five years. I don't want to plug my book again, but <laughs> go right ahead. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I, I think that opening. <laughs> I think laying these crises that we're talking about now, this you know, just unimaginably horrible conflict in this wheat-producing, energy-producing region, on top of the themes of my book, which is even if we wanted to keep up this agriculture style in the United States, we can't because the ecologies that it, that it relies on are unraveling before our eyes. And I just hope this crisis gives us the opportunity as a society to think in a new direction. Uh, you know, and I think we're, the thing is, we're at the very beginning of this crisis, um, Katie. Like, I I don't see this war any, ending anytime soon. No. Um, and, you know, let's just also note that it is morphing into a confrontation between two nuclear powers. Yeah. Um, which is not, um, you know, not un-anxiety producing itself. Right. Um, so, yeah, we're, um, you know, we're at the start of this big crisis and, you know, we're we're in the hole in a lot of ways. We're, you know, th- things we needed to have changed decades ago um, have intensified um, to, you know, to bring us to this point. Yeah. And I just hope we can figure out how to to change course now. Well, I, I think it's, you know, I don't even know what the answer is, but um, capitalism, the way we practice it now is not the answer. That, that's what I do know. We, this kind of extractive maximum profit for, you know, at the expense of, you know, pretty much everyone and everything else, that's, it can't keep going. There's got to be some regulations in place. We got to roll back those, you know, Reagan years, that Reagan mindset of supply side economics. I can't believe that stuff is still being touted. I mean, I it just blows my mind. I mean, the state of Kansas went into practically went into bankruptcy as a result of, you know, supply side economic models. And that wasn't enough to, uh, you know, to drive people away from the idea yet. We're still hearing this same old freaking story. I mean, come on, people. It's like, really? It's because we don't read and everybody's so undereducated now. It's, I mean, uh, anyway, we, anyway, Tom, I hate to say it, but I think we have to call it a day here because um, we I, have been talking Katie, for 40 you're... minutes. <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say, if we had five more minutes, we could definitely solve the world's problems. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why you're cutting us off now. Yeah, right? Well, (laughs) you know what? You and I will think about that, and you'll be back in a few weeks to talk about the solutions. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'll be looking forward to your next article on why we need to restore our grain reserves. Awesome. Thank you so much. Good stuff. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Tom. Really appreciate your time today. Take care. And thank you, folks, for listening. Um, We'll be back next week. Oh, no, we're going on break for a couple of weeks, but uh, I'll be back after that with more outrage. Um, So stay tuned until then. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.